Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. For two decades, discussion about reducing greenhouse gases focused primarily on power plants, automobiles, and other major sources of carbon pollution. In 2008, California opened a new front in the battle against climate change by passing the Sustainable Communities and Climate Change Act, a pioneering law that connects buildings and land use with efforts to stabilize the natural systems that sustain our way of life. When the bill passed, a New York Times article called the legislation the country's most comprehensive. Effort to reduce sprawl. The law, also known as SB 375, was supported by an unusual coalition of environmentalists, home builders, and local governments who don't often seem eye to eye, see eye to eye. Today, we'll check in on California's anti-sprawl law with a building developer, a transit advocate, and a representative of Bay Area agencies responsible for its implementation. Joining us are Stuart Cohen, executive director of Transform, a transit advocacy group. Mike Gilmetti, president of Signature Development Group, a land developer, and Ezra Rapor, executive director of the Association of Bay Area Governments. Please welcome them to Climate One. <laughs> Gentlemen, thanks for coming. Uh, Ezra, let's begin with you. Let's look at the the big picture in terms of how much housing is projected to be needed in. The Bay Area, as California grows from about 38 million people today to 46 million in the next couple of decades. Yes, well, we uh, recently did a calculation of housing need in the Bay Area and came up with about 900,000 units over the next 25 years. But we are under no illusion that that level of housing is actually going to be built.、Um, okay. The Bay Area has not met its housing need for the, at least the last 30 years. Um, and that's because it is so difficult to construct the amount of housing that's required here, and we see that trend continuing. It's a it's a very challenging environment to, to to create more housing in the Bay Area. So we need about a million new units. We're not going to get it. So that means the housing shortage in the Bay Area will continue. Michael Medi, you're in the business of、uh, meeting that demand.、Uh, you'd like to presumably like to to build more. What's in the way of of building more? Uh, a, a patchwork of regulations that is often contradictory,、um, from local regulations to regional regulations to state regulations, and、um, as was discussed in, the, in a prior panel,、um, folks that live near the housing generally don't want the housing. 
So uh, community uh, opposition is, is, is probably a big one as well. Stuart Cohen, you're a, a transit advocate. Do you think that uh, we need to do some greenfield development to meet uh, some of this housing? It need to be a combination of infill in cities as well as raw land? Yeah, there's been a variety of analyses for the Bay Area. Uh, and the truth is we probably could do it with really minimal, and some would say almost no greenfield development. Uh, but we've got to rationalize the whole development process. Right now, just as an example, um, you know, we often will require more housing for the cars that people expect to bring than the bedrooms themselves, you know, requiring two and a half or three parking spaces for, you know, a one-bedroom unit, which uh, Campbell uh, in the South Bay just got rid of last week. Now they replaced it with 2.5 parking spaces per unit. Well, we've so, got friends, and we have, we've got to have more so, than one car, so, right? So, so people say, well, we can't do enough infill, but in part there are too many obstacles uh, to doing it right, and those are obstacles we have control of. Um, uh, and I, I, So I, I, I am hopeful for the future, but we really uh, need to create a vision uh, for the future that people can believe in and, and, and a way to understand that infill development, if done right, and it's a big if, but if done right, can actually enhance our communities and not uh, detract from them. Well, let's talk about the Sustainable Communities Act, which was passed in 2008, as I said. Uh, Mike, a lot of home builders uh, supported that uh, and got together with environmentalists. You guys are not often on the same page. Is that uh, coalition or support still holding together three years after the bill was passed? Um, I would say yes. We, we, we did sincerely uh, support it, and we still support it. Um, there's a big difference between passing a bill and executing uh, the law that that bill represents. And um, the SCS process is underway in the in the Bay Area. What's SCS? Uh, sorry, uh, Sustainable Community Strategy. SCS, okay. um, and each region has to come up with its own SCS plan. And, and it's being uh, promulgated by the, uh, the regional agencies here, including uh, uh, ABAG. Um, and... You know, it's the devil is in the details. How is this going to be implemented? As a building community, um, you know, I also am the chair of the Building Industry Association of the Bay Area. I can tell you that our members would like to build the type of housing that Stuart is talking about, but it is uh, there are a lot of challenges inherent in that. And our hope was that this bill would provide a better pathway uh, to to implementing those strategies. And we'll get into some of those obstacles. As a report, uh, your agency is responsible for implementing this Sustainable Communities Act. What's the real significance of this act, and what's it going to change in terms of government planning? Well, uh, what I like most about the law is that it was an attempt to uh, bring people together around individual regional strategies so that what happens in the state as a whole doesn't have to happen in the Bay Area. The Bay Area can craft its own solution. And to that extent, the idea is to build partnerships between local governments who have land use authority, regional agencies who create regulations and have incentives and dollars, transit agencies which need to provide the services, and environmental groups who need to get on board with uh, uh, supporting a plan so that we can remove a lot of these barriers that are keeping are getting in the way of, of doing appropriate sustainable development. But where's the, the sort of the, the carrot and the stick in this? I mean, just getting people to talk together to talk, which is what we're doing right now, doesn't override their institutional uh, or their own self-interest. So where, what, what are the consequences? What are the levers in the law? Is it money dangling that people will get to, to encourage uh, desired behavior? Or are there penalties if, if, 
if I go to build sprawl somewhere, is someone going to get whacked? Well, it can Not whacked, but you know, yeah. <laughs> spank. Yeah, you pick. <laughs> you pick your own. Analogy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I say that there are several planning processes that are being integrated that have real benefits and potential drawbacks um, if there's non-compliance with the plan. The first is that there's a housing allocation required for cities to zone a certain number of units uh, for every every eight years. So the Bay Area will have to zone somewhere around 250,000 units over the next uh, eight years. So by 2016, that zoning needs to be in place. We're trying, and the ABAG, the association, is responsible for allocating where that zoning takes place. So we're responsible for making sure that the zoning of the cities matches with the long-term sustainable community strategy. And if the zoning's not in place, the cities are subject to litigation and general fund uh, problems. The second is that the Regional Transportation Plan, which allocates over $200 billion over the next 25 years, also needs to be consistent with this plan. And the idea is to provide incentives to local governments through more infrastructure dollars and support for planning and sequel relief so that it makes it easier for them to develop in the areas where they think uh, is appropriate to meet the policies of the plan. CEQA being the California Environmental Quality Act, and we'll get to that later. So, okay, there needs to be more housing in the Bay Area. Where is it going to go? Do we know yet? I mean, is it going to go in Palo Alto? Is it going to go? Where is it going to go? Well, what's, what's good about what's happened in the Bay Area is that about five years ago, we began something called the FOCUS program, which was a blueprint plan that was funded by Caltrans. Um, and in that process, there was a call for priority development areas around the, the Bay Area, um, and fortunately, the planning profession, as well as city councils, responded by identifying what is now 160 areas in the Bay Area where they're ready to do growth management and development that they think have political support and make good support, uh, have good case for sustainability. We vetted those areas and found that they were located near transit or close to jobs and have now identified that as the framework for our sustainable community strategy. So we started this about five years ago. We've now identified the areas. There are still challenges to actually build and construct quality neighborhoods that people's quality of life improves when they get built. Uh, but at least we know where the pattern should be. Do the people who live in those 162 areas know that more housing, they're going to have more neighbors? What they've committed to is a neighborhood planning process, not just housing. So it's mixed use, it's retail, it's shopping, it's cafes, it's streetscape improvements, it's pocket parts, it's school improvements. It's, it's something we call complete communities. So they're not just looking at an individual project coming up by their house, which they don't like. They're looking at the transformation of a neighborhood. And that's why the planning directors okay. chose those areas, because they felt there would be support for improving that neighborhood. So some new shops that to, comes in. Uh, Mike Gilmetti, are you ready to put some capital into these areas to go build in these areas that have been identified as places for smart growth? I would think some of them, yes. But, again, translating this, I mean, Ezra's right. They're doing a great job uh, taking a look, you know, at 20,000 feet and identifying these areas and working with current city councils and current planning directors. I may come into that project five or ten years from now or three or four years from now, and there may be a different city council or a different planning director or different neighbors or neighbors that weren't involved in the process the first time and now they want to get involved. And when the rubber hits the road, I'm going to have to do produce an environmental document in conjunction with the city that supports um, this vision. Uh, those shops may not be economically viable because you may not have the population density to support it. Um, who's going to pay for the schools? Who's going to pay for the parks? Certainly the development community over the last 30 years has played a significant role in, in, in paying for new schools, um, in paying for parks and improvements of infrastructure roads and 
you know, the stuff that no one thinks about, sewer and water and, and that type of stuff. Um, but, you know, is, are the economics there for that to work in these areas? And, and, and that's a question we have to analyze on a, on a project by project basis. But, you know, you may have a general plan designation, which is in essence the, the city's, you know, vision of how they want to grow. Um, but we still need to produce an environmental document that supports uh, a particular project that we can build a hundred homes here or so much retail and so many homes, you know, whether it's four-story homes or single-family homes or somewhere in between. Uh, the, the, the point is that the community support is generally not there as much. And are there historic buildings on the site? Is there contamination on the site? Is there infrastructure to serve the site? And so the, the practical reality is it's much more difficult to implement unless there are, as you said, carrots and incentives to make that happen. And, and that is what we haven't seen so far that we'd like to be able to see a little bit more of. Are there backlashes in some communities? You've mentioned there are some communities that are starting to realize, whoa, we didn't realize we we're going to get this much change in our neighborhood as part of this regional plan. Oh, I think there's backlashes in every community when new new development is proposed because it represents change. Um, not all these neighborhoods want think that they need to have a, a transformation. Some of them do. And, and look, look I, I agree with Ezra, by the way. I want to emphasize that, that we have to push this vision forward, okay, because we have to figure out a way to accommodate growth so that we can provide housing for all levels of society. We can provide for new jobs and economic vitality in the Bay Area. So, you know, there's... There's these these uh, uh, pillars, you know, you have the economy and, and the, the environment and, and, and equity and whatnot, and the, and the economy has to be represented there um, because, in essence, that's what pays for a lot of it. Stuart Corwin, let's get you in on this. And do you think that these goals are realistic, and do you think that there's some na- legitimate neighborhood concerns about increased density? You're an advocate for density. Yeah. <laughs> do you think there's some legitimate concerns about uh, increasing density where it doesn't already exist? Well, Residents, neighbors should absolutely be concerned about what's going to happen in their community. Um, and the problem often is there's not the venue, the right venue, for their voice to be heard. And even when we think about getting community involvement, it's, it's often once a plan is created, you say, well, if we can tweak it this way or that way, would it make you happier? Um, we uh, co-founded a project called the Great Communities Collaborative that's funded by the Ford Foundation and others. Uh, and is now being really seen as a model for how to change that um, by actually bringing the community in at the very, very beginning. And we've been in 25 sites in the Bay Area. I'll just take San Leandro as one. Um, they were looking at the downtown by the BART station, right now zoned for 500 units, because very low density downtown. Um, and uh, we brought the community in and said, well, let's, let's think about what they want before the planning process begins, and did a whole community survey. And it turned out they wanted a child care center near BART, dropped their kids off on the way. They wanted uh, safer streets for walking and biking. They wanted some park. Um, and they wanted affordable places for their kids to live who were all moving away to the Central Valley. So it got into the plan. And that final plan uh, ended up increasing density sevenfold. So now 3,500 units could be built in that half-mile radius by BART. Um, and it included plans for things like the child care center. It had a lineup of 35 speakers supporting and two opposing when it came in front of the city council to get unanimous support. And because of that support, the developers came in quickly to try to develop some of those parcels. Um, and the first one, and here's where I mentioned parking before, where this has to be a whole system that you start from that bigger thinking and get down to the individual details. 
that parcel closest to the BART station previously would have required two parking spaces per unit. Um, it would have had parking on the ground floor, kind of been ugly, couldn't have had retail. With their new plan, they only had to build one parking space per unit that freed up space for the child care center, which will be in that development. Um, it freed up space for walk-up units, which meant they can get 30 more affordable units for a total of 100 out of 300 units as part of that first development. And so what we saw was these residents embracing this actual on-the-ground development of 300 units that would have been opposed if they had just come in four years earlier out of the blue and said, hey, we're building here. Well, so that's, well, we've got to change yeah. the fundamental paradigm of how we think of planning. Well, Kilmetti, would you be interested in a development with uh, fewer parking spaces, uh, more play pens? I mean, really? <laughs> play pens. Um, Child care. It sounds like a no wonderful... one gets whacked. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, yes. I mean, in, in general, yes. I mean, depending on where it's located. Uh, certainly, next to BART and transit, there's less need for cars. Um, I don't think it's a one-size-fit-all. Um, what I do react to is uh, cities or municipalities in general putting uh, artificial constraints on... Because, look, the developer is going to default to lower parking because it, it, it's more cost-effective. Um, but then the market's going to have a say in it as well. Uh, because in certain communities, they're going to need their car more, even if they're near BART, to go to the grocery store or to go to other uh, places, you know, in, you know, especially if you, you have two working individuals and, and maybe kids. Um, there's a lot more trips generated than uh, a, a single or, or a couple with no kids um, and or, you know, people that live in San Francisco or parts of Oakland or whatnot, that more amenities are, are walkable. So the, the cars aren't limited to just BART. It's, it's what else is in the area. We had some people here on the stage uh, two weeks ago from General Motors and Toyota. It was surprised how much they're thinking about transportation as a service. They're in the business of selling cars, but they recognize that Zipcar, City Car Share, there's a change going out there in mobility as a service, not something you have to own, uh, some metal that is not used 20 or 18 hours a day. Is that filtering into your thinking about parking space and thinking differently about, about the car ownership model that's been for the last hundred years. As an example, we have a, a project that was uh, approved in Oakland not, not long ago that was a uh, project which we call unbundled. So normally uh, a developer would provide a, uh, not so much on a single family home or whatnot, but say a, a, a mid-rise building where you would drive in and have a common garage. Most of the time you'd have an assigned space, okay? And so the ratio is one per or two per or whatever that ratio is. Unbundled means it's first come, first serve. Well, look, there's always a vacancy rate uh, uh, even on a condo, someone's on vacation, uh, you know, someone's out and about or at work when someone else is at home, you can generally get by with a slightly smaller ratio just naturally by unbundling. Um, it's been an education process to the financial community because as developers, we're also beholden to banks and equity sources. Um, much as mu- most of you think we're all powerful, we're not. Um, so we have to educate those people. We have to educate the consumer, the ultimate mm-hmm. user of that, that that's okay to do uh, because their immediate thought is, well, I just paid 500000 or 200000 or a million dollars for this condo, and now I may not have a parking space when I come home. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of education involved in that stuff. But I agree with you. This notion of zip cars or car sharing and the web is helping with that, and there's all kinds of new startups that are, are doing that. Certainly bicycles and other, uh, uh, you know, having secure bike racks and other alternative means of, of transportation and just being well-located so people could walk or bike to various and use is very, very important. But 
let's face it, cars are still, as was shown earlier, the dominant uh, uh, mode of transportation. Um, and so we have to acknowledge that they're there and we have to provide for them. Absolutely. Can I, can I just sure. say, to, uh, Greg, I think you make a great point with car share. It's a new technology in Europe. It's very well developed in certain areas. And all of the studies that have been done on city car share have shown that you can get rid of about one out of six vehicles um, for, you know, if, let's just say built in a multifamily housing. A lot of folks would go from two to one vehicle. Some would go from one to zero because they just really need it, you know, to get to Marin on a weekend. And you don't yeah. need to own a vehicle all week if that's your primary trip. Um, and so um, we've got a program, Green Trip. Uh, it's a certification program that actually gives a badge of honor to developers that put city car share uh, into their developments, give out free memberships so that there's no barrier to entry to all of their uh, residents, uh, give out free or discount transit passes, uh, and then with that, reduce the amount of parking. And, th- and so this is working. In the city of Berkeley, uh, Parker Place just got approved. Um, it's on Shattuck Avenue on the main strip. And they were supposed to put in uh, just under one space per unit. When they started engaging with us and, and offered to do the car share in the building and the transit passes, the city said, no, you might not actually need to provide all of that. People might not do it. So, so they're actually letting them put in much less. And only if there's the demand will they have to kind of put in parking elevators and spend all that money. So we're taking money that would have been spent on providing for cars and instead giving people transit passes. And that's the kind of thinking, uh, and now actually Berkeley's going to put that into the code. And all people, in the, all re, you know, developers are going to have to do that in the future. So that's the kind of change that we can do. That's a win-win. Residents save money. Uh, and the city gets less traffic, less crowded streets. Uh, it kind of prevents future rebellions against infill if we're bringing people and vibrancy and folks to support the restaurants and the movie theaters without their vehicles. Car sharing is the coolest thing. My daughter thinks it's great. Sometimes I have a blue car. Sometimes I have a green car. I come from the city car <laughs> share. She's, she's seven. She thinks it's great. Uh, Mike Gilmetti, do you make more money on infill or mon- more money when you do sp- uh, greenfield development? It's not an either or. It's some, some, I mean, it depends on the project. So, I mean, we have equal opportunity for, uh, you know, providing a fair return in either uh, greenfield areas or infill areas. It really depends on the type of product um, uh, and, and the time in the market, obviously. But I will say infill is inherently riskier. Uh, and so, on paper, we try to underwrite to a higher return because it is a lot riskier. Um, the... the the, the, the development approval time takes longer. The cost of capital is more expensive. The cost of financing, insurance, all the soft costs associated are all more expensive. And quite frankly, the amount of capital needed is much greater. On, uh, at, a, at a single-family home, I can build, you know, 2,000 square feet for, you know, plus or minus $100,000. Just just the sticks and bricks, if you will. A, a high-rise... 1,000 square foot home is more like $400,000. Just the sticks and bricks. I'm not talking land. I'm not talking insurance or, or infrastructure or you know, parks or schools or anything like that. Just the cost to, to construct. But well, you can sell that high rise for more too. Well, I can uh, in certain markets. Uh, you know, I, I can in San Francisco. I can't in Concord. Uh, I can't in, in Novato. I can't in, um, you know, Walnut Creek. There are a lot sure. of places I can't The market's not going to accept it. But in San Francisco, you can build infill, and you'll, the market rewards it. 
In certain cases, yes. Not over the last few years, but yes. Okay. As a report, what can governments do to address the cost of capital, the time that, that uh, Michael Medi is just talking about, the, the red tape to get through, to get these things from planning up out of the ground? Well, any plan that goes forward is going to have to be built by the private sector. And what, what has happened in the past is that all the burden of planning conflicts or governmental regulations has been placed on the developer. The developer has to fix all the government documents so they're consistent, has to provide all the infrastructure that wasn't accounted for by utility rates, uh, has to c- completely please the community for that one project, um, I- I- even though it's, it's, it's benefiting a whole neighborhood. Um, and it's a completely unsustainable burden for the private sector to take on. Uh, so what has to happen as we identify these neighborhood plans is for the government sector basically to get its act together and provide all of the necessary planning tools that resolve all the policy conflicts, gets the whole area entitled for growth, refreshes it every three years so it doesn't have to be redone, and allows the project developer to go in just on their individual project issues alone, which should be relatively insignificant, and then protect against lawsuits in the future. And what's good about the sustainable community strategy is that it did shift the legal burden if we can make the proper finding from what was something called the fair arguments test, where anyone with $2,500 could argue anything, and then the case would go forward and it could be held up as much as four years, where the developer loses the benefits of the development cycle and the revenue and can't estimate what the project's worth anymore, to something called the substantial evidence test, which says that if the governmental entity has substantial evidence to back its finding, the case can be dismissed. That's a huge potential benefit that would resolve a lot of the issues um, that I think are frivolous. Because what's most important is that the project be properly planned. But that should be done on a neighborhood level, not on an individual project level. As a report, as executive director of the Association of Bay Area Governments, are there guests today at Climate One are Mike Gilmetti, president of Signature Development Group, and Stuart Cohen, executive director of Transform. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Stuart talked about the example of Pleasanton, which involved a lot of upfront work. And I'm curious about, we are not a society that thinks in decades or even years or a little longer than we can handle. Who and what kind of people are involved in investing their time in what their community is going to look like in five or ten years? I mean, is that something that more people are going to do? Uh, I'm just, Stuart, who was involved in that process? Uh, so um, in all of these communities that we work in with the Great Communities Collaborative, we find community organizations that have a strong base already in the community okay. In this case, it was congregations organizing for renewal, a faith-based organization that has many members near the downtown. Um, we made sure they had the capacity, provided a sub-grant, so they can be involved throughout the process, engage their members. They helped do the community survey. Um, and, um, and we have a leadership institute that works with a couple of leaders there so they can talk Planning 101 and hopefully even Planning 201 with um, the city commissions and planners. So we do need to elevate um, kind of a, at a foundational level who's engaged and to make sure some of the community leaders understand how important planning is. Too often, organizations like that are dealing with the symptoms of our problems that bad planning creates, whether it's homelessness or you know unaffordability or really dangerous streets. Um, and so... It's a matter of education of saying, you know, this is a 10-year plan. This is going to change zoning that might actually stay around for more like 20 or 25. So now's the time to get engaged. What we had to be careful about is that the timing is right. 
because people will only partake in such an exercise, you know, if uh, and get anything out of it if it's going to create something. So we only go into these communities when the city's about to start a planning process to change the zoning. It's really hard just to go out there at an academic level and try to engage people. Start from scratch. Yeah. Uh, as a report, some of your uh, members of the Association of Bay Area Governments, they're elected officials. They're, on, they're not on a decade cycle. They're on a two- or four-year election cycle, and they're thinking about the next election. How does that map up with long-term planning when they have short-term incentives? Well, uh, the cities um, <clears throat> all have uh, specific issues with respect to how they're going to meet their zoning requirements. And so if they get ahead of the game, they're a lot better off than trying to fight it from the, from the well, we have to get this done next year and it's someone else's fault, but this is, you know, our requirement. So that's why the planning directors were able to identify these priority development areas and get the city councils to approve them as a plan going forward. And now we have specific geographies that will be worked on for the next five to ten years to get them actually ready for growth. And that requires a lot of the kind of work Stuart's talking about. It requires a lot of the analysis that Mike is talking about. Um, but at least we now have a framework for, for growth. And in those cases, in each one of those cases, the city council has endorsed that specific area. It's a complicated equation as to why that area works. Sometimes it's because there aren't that many neighbors that would be an objection, sometimes because it's lacking certain amenities that people would like to see if growth took place. Sometimes it's just an area that's underutilized. There's no specific way to figure that out. It really requires the planning directors and the planning staff to understand that that's an opportunity area. So you're saying that elected officials can actually think beyond their election cycle? Well, <laughs> the election cycle is obviously paramount in all politicians' minds. But when they're sitting on this on the city council and they're talking about a plan for growth, which is going to take place over the next in their general plan over the next 10 to 20 years, they're not being challenged in their election cycle by those decisions. Right. The projects, when they come up, will have a specific <laughs> impact on that district. So it's possible that the rest of the council, having committed to this process and having worked on it year after year, might say, well, I'm really sorry that you're having problems with your neighborhood. You can vote no and we'll vote to support it. And in the end, um, that would be one uh, avenue. But in most cases, in my, my point of view, if a project is properly planned and it's got community buy-in and it's continually refreshed and, and, and revised, you will get the type of support that Stuart was talking about. You'll have a lot of advocates. You may have a few naysayers, but their arguments will look marginal. The other arguments will look strong, and it won't be that difficult to politically support it. Are there some specific examples where this is working in the Bay Area? We mentioned Pleasanton. Are there others where this new regional planning, maybe it's too early, but are there other examples we can point to who say this is the kind of development that will improve lifestyles and health and reduce carbon pollution in the the state, the direction the state of California wants to go? Yes. um, I think the Bay Area is evolving over the last 10 years to start looking at this as a a model for transit-oriented development. So even in well in the big cities like San Francisco, there's mission the Mission Project and the Third Street Project and enormously successful in Oakland. The Jack London Square is a is a really nice area now, and uh, the Uptown Project is really transforming the downtown as a residential district um, in, Con- in in Concord or in Pleasant Hill has done a wonderful redevelopment project with great mixed use. Downtown Hayward has done a really good job with their. Uh, TOD and, and transit-oriented development. Transit-oriented development and Berkeley downtown project finally got approved and you know it's 
fighting off all challenges. So there's a lot of progress being made in the Bay Area. A lot more needs to happen, and it's not quite ready to build yet. And But we happen to be at a point in the development cycle when planning is really paramount. There's an awful lot of issues that have to, we have to go through on the financing side before construction can actually start. This is a wonderful opportunity right now to, to, to plan it and plan it well. Mike Amedi, would you agree? Uh, yeah, I would. I think it's a great time uh, to, uh, to, to plan. And, and I think there was a time where the, the region thought uh, uh, bigger picture, you know, in visions of 10, 20, 30 years. I think in the last 10 to 20 years, it hasn't occurred as much. Um, I do think that the next stages need to start marrying into this, this notion of financing. Because if you, you do put more people in the urban areas, then you're going to have more impacts, even with less cars, with traffic signals and, and local infrastructure of sewer lines. I mean, San Francisco's sewer system is legendary. It's 100 years old. Um, and all these things need to be upgraded when you put more burdens on it. Um, and they, you know, you, the, the cost to the projects goes up. The development community wants to be a part of that solution, but it probably can't bear it. Uh, unilaterally, and and the, the community should get benefits. It should get nice shops. It should get transformational uh, uh, notions in certain neighborhoods. Uptown in, <clears throat> Uptown uh, in, in Oakland is a fantastic example. It's a neighborhood that's utterly transformed because of that project and others. So um, everyone needs to be part of solving those problems uh, together in, in in this you know dirty word of financing and and, and, and capital allocation. So. Um, I think that is a very necessary uh, next step. We mentioned the California Environmental Quality Act earlier, which is the state's main environmental law. Uh, and the law we're talking about, another law we're talking about, the Sustainable Communities Act, provides for some fast-track or CEQA relief, re- loosening environmental regulations around land development. Stuart uh, Cohen, is that a good idea to, in some cases, relax environmental laws that uh, get in the way of development? Well, CEQA, and this is where the environmental community really has come a long way in about 10 or 15 years in understanding um, that we need to think, if we're going to take on things like climate change, we can't only worry about some very local environmental impact um, and uh, and and so that CEQA relief finally got support from the environmental community. It was part of the deal. It's what the uh, developers really wanted out of SB 375. It's really the linchpin of what made this work. Um, the perverse um, consequences were that when you had an infill project, you were forced to analyze um, w- whether you can basically mitigate the, your environmental impacts by building a less dense project on the site or by building it you know, further out in some greenfield, funny enough. And um, it sure, it would say, yes, there will be lo- less local air pollution if you build lower density. And then the local community can say, you see, they're building the highest impact, you know, development possible. This is outrageous from an environmental perspective while we, you know, continue to send all these people to live in Tracy and drive in every day. So what, what SB 375 does, it has basically three different levels of exemptions, but at a most basic level, um, if a residential development project, and it really focuses on residential, fits in with the sustainable communities uh, strategies map, essentially, it won't have to do those basic analyses, kind of look at a lower density project on the site or consider it elsewhere. If it's a small project that's right by transit, doesn't have of historic preservation issues or um, has some amount of affordability or park space or a really, you know, an ideal kind of project, um, it may qualify for a full exemption. Uh, it'll be a smaller handful of projects, but it's really um, what Mike described as this huge burden and risk 
will get greatly reduced, especially for the smaller projects that are so hard to uh, to happen. Stuart Cohen's executive director of Transform, a transit advocacy group. Uh, Mike Gilmetti, is that going to be good for business? Less uh, red environmental red tape for you to get uh, buildings constructed? The short answer is yes. The, the longer answer is I think this notion of the ideal project is um, somewhat of a unicorn. It maybe doesn't exist. Um, so, you know, the, the right amount of affordable housing with no hazardous materials or historic uh, structures or, uh, you know, the open space. There's a whole bunch of filters it needs to go through, and I think very few projects at the end of the day will, will qualify. That being said, I like the intent, I like the direction, and I think it's a very good uh, first step in order to uh, carve out that exemption that fits within these, this regional thinking. I mean, the, the travesty of CEQA uh, isn't that it exists, because, you know, projects should have to, you know, mitigate. I, you know, the, the old days and 50 years ago, no one's advocating going back to that. Where uh, you can build anything right, anywhere. You, you, know, you just go ahead and plop it down and it's all good. Um, no one's advocating going back to that. But right now, as Stuart pointed out, I mean, I had a, I had a big project that was very uh, controversial uh, in, in, in Oakland on, along the water. It was called Oak to Ninth, and it was 3,100 units and, you know, mixed income, mixed use, uh, retail, marina, et cetera, parks, environmental remediation, transit. Um, it was held up by a number of national organizations as a model of sustainability. That being said, the local folks that... We always like to call them NIMBYs, um, not in my backyard. They came out and said, well, air quality and, and all these other uh, issues that are out here. Um, but as Stuart pointed out, and I met with the executive director of the Sierra Club, and he said, well, wait, if you didn't build this here, how many acres would it take in Tracy? That was his very first uh, answer. And what would be the air pollution there? And, and why can't you get credit for that uh, in the CEQA process? And the answer is because CEQA doesn't provide for it. Um, at least as currently written. And it's, it's, a, and it's an amazing point. What about the regional traffic? What about the regional air pollution? What about the, you know, the, 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 the you know, all the regional impacts? And, and those aren't there. In fact, you know, even with SCS right now, you still have all the agencies of which, you know, Ezra runs one ABAG, but there's the Air Quality District of the Bay Area, there's, uh, um, BCDC, and there's MTC. And so that's the Bay Conservation and Development sorry, Commission yes. and the Metropolitan Transportation Commission. Yes, alphabet soup. Yes. Um, so right now they sometimes have or are promulgating policies that may be in direct conflict with each other and or with SCS. The Air Quality District um, set uh, a CEQA standard for uh, greenhouse gases and where, you know, w- which really leads, not greenhouse gases, um, particulate. thank you. Yeah. Uh, and... It makes it harder for us to build infill because it raises the uh, threshold for which my CEQA review, the Environmental Quality Act review, has to occur in many cases. Um, so if I'm building a project in downtown, pick a city. I mean, H- Highway 101, 580, 880, uh, you know, most of our cities uh, are built near freeways. But, you know, if you're within a 1,000 feet of a freeway or other kind of, of uh, uh, producer particulate matter, uh, you have a higher threshold to uh uh, subject your project to and make it makes it easier for opponents to uh, sue. As a report, is that fair that the air people say, what about the air, that the water people worry about the water, then the other people worry about this, that it's, it's a lot of uh, hoops to jump through for a developer to get a job uh, through the process? Yeah, it makes it virtually impossible to develop. And I think uh, the policy conflicts need to be resolved at another level and not when an individual project comes forward. I mean, you can't expect an individual project to say, how are you going to solve sea level rise for this city? 
I mean, that, that, and, and, and that, that's the type of, of issue that actually comes forward in, in a CEQA document that where the government hasn't done its job of properly planning and resolving the conflicts that, that have to uh, be undertaken because they're all, everything's a trade-off. I mean, if you don't develop in the infill areas, the pressure is going to go somewhere else and it's going to cause a big problem. Well, make the proper findings and immunize that project from that argument. And it's the same thing with regional traffic. Of course, we want infill development and more transit. That's also going to cause more traffic in the cities. But that's an expected outcome of this type of development. It provides more resources for transit, actually. So that should be taken off the table for individual projects. And the sustainable community strategy is the platform by which we can solve these problems if we properly invest our money in planning and get these issues resolved. As a reporter, as executive director of the Association of Bay Area Governments, our other guests here at Climate One today are Mike Gilmetti, president of Signature Development Group, and Stuart Cohen, executive director of Transform Transit Agency, an advocacy organization. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, so, Stuart, uh, no, sorry, Ezra, you're actually calling for some statewide leadership then. Well, I think what SB 375 did, the sustainable community strategy, is allow each region to carve its own path. Because the the politics in Southern California and other places are really not on board with this type of strategy, and they have completely different contexts in which to operate. So what may be a problem for them may be an asset for us. Um, So it's really important for our four regional agencies and the partnership with local government and the private sector to march forward, identify the specific barriers, and solve these problems. And there's enough money in this region to do that. At, at every level. We just haven't committed to it, and I think it's time that we do that. Well, there's, so enough, there's enough money, but, you know, we, we've often been wasting that money, uh, too. And um, the part that we haven't been, you know, discussing so far today is the transportation side of things. We've been talking a lot about the development. Mm-hmm. All of this transit-oriented development, if we don't change our ways, is just going to be OD instead of TOD because we are cutting our transit service, um, you know, by the year instead of expanding it all the time. And so um, uh, my organization has worked a lot on trying to make more rational transportation investments, uh, just like with development, where we're still trying to get away from this concept of, um, you know, it's all going to be greenfield, and, and, you know, so it's complicated to pull it back in. Um, But our resources were still planned for the last 20 years to feed that greenfield development, mostly with new highways. As we shift over to wanting infill development, we've also got to prioritize our transportation dollars, uh, $200 billion over the next 25 years, uh, to support that infill development, or this whole plan is not going to work. It's going to unravel. Uh, and all those folks that I'm hoping need fewer cars, take fewer trips, are not going to be able to. Uh, and so as part of this regional plan, uh, it actually happens within the context of something called the Regional Transportation Plan, where we set out all of our needs, all of the likely funding, and where we think we'll place that funding for 25 years. And um, right now, we've been chasing politically popular projects, often because they got put into some you know, sales tax measure that was voted on, um, and neglecting some really basic needs. The, you know, the Probably the most glaring example is BART, where... The political um, energy is kind of a centrifugal force for extensions to the farthest parts of the region. Livermore, you know, to get their station, $3 billion. 
uh, for a town of about 60,000 people. Um, meanwhile, you're hearing about BART having a $7 billion shortfall to replace their cars, to keep up their tracks, um, to do all the size. Clean those need, seats. To clean those seats, which let's not talk about that. I took BART today. Um, and, um, and so we need to say to Livermore, you know, you're going to have to get bus rapid transit over to Dublin Pleasanton Station. We can't afford $3 billion while we let our core system fall to pieces. Um, and so we need our regional agency, known as MTC, that deals with transportation, um, to have that backbone. They didn't have it with the Oakland Airport Connector, a project we vehemently opposed, spending $400-plus million for a three-mile leg on an uncongested little corridor, Hagenberger, to drop people in the airport parking lot um, to carry a few more riders than the current Air BART system. That's $400 million that BART doesn't have that is now, they're talking about going out to the voters just to be able to get some new cars. So, so we need um, a, you know, a much smarter transportation system to support all this development. Uh, that requires public confidence. So would you, uh, people don't have a whole lot of confidence in Muni and some of the systems that exist. So would you say we should be putting more money into Muni? That's tough politically to support when people aren't so fond of Muni already. Yeah, there's actually, this is all getting so bad. I mean, it's, it's really actually such a crisis because what we're seeing with these annual transit cuts these last four years, all this talk about Caltrain being cut, is actually the tip of the iceberg. If you look out over the finances for our public transportation system in the Bay Area, what you see is a $25 billion with a B shortfall over 25 years. That's about $17 billion just to maintain it to rebuild the rails, and about $8 billion to operate it at its current day system. Um, and so it's no wonder that people are losing faith. And so MTC, again, the regional agency, has this transit sustainability project that's underway that'll end next year. And it's looking at three different pieces, how we can make these systems more efficient, maybe by getting dedicated lanes for buses. So they don't have to sit in traffic, which costs a lot of money um, and loses riders how we maybe make um, lower costs, including making union rules more rational, because even the unions don't like a lot of the current rules that are in. Uh, and, uh, and then finally, how do we generate some new revenue? So if we don't deal with all three of those aspects, we're going to start to see transit collapse. Stuart Cohn's executive director of Transform. Uh, as a report, uh, Stuart just mentioned unions. Uh, youth believe that there's going to have to be some renegotiation of, of union, of contracts that's going to uh, solve the fiscal crisis that we have in cities that will enable some of these investments to go forward. Well, there's no doubt that we have a public sector crisis in California as a whole, um, and it's affecting many local governments as well. Um, part of the problem is the way we finance ourselves um, and Part of the problem are some of the contracts that were signed with pension benefits and health benefits that were not sustainable. So I think there's a movement to make those much more sustainable in the future by requiring more contributions, for example. Um, well, we need that issue to get taken out of the out of the way so that we so can. You're talking about public employee contracts. unions having pensions changed, and that clears the way for some of the things we're talking about. Yes, and I think that's that's inevitable. I, I probably going to happen in the next year or so, where we're going to see some reform of that system so that we can sustain these costs and provide reasonable pensions and health care. I mean, it, the argument that people shouldn't get pensions or shouldn't get health care is not one that, that I support. I, th I think those are, are reasonable things to, to be received. But there are many uh, other cases where it's just it's out of hand, and 
that needs to be corrected. So until public confidence can be won back that we now have an efficient system, um, we're not going to see more revenue. And the efficiency of the system goes way beyond those public sector contracts. We have uh, 500 special districts in the Bay Area alone in 100 cities. Uh, we spend $12 billion a year on public sector salaries in the Bay Area. There's a lot of efficiency that needs to be gained through this process so that we can provide a higher level of service to the residents and then figure out how we refinance ourselves to be sustainable. It's not just about land use and transportation. We're talking about sustainable development at Climate One. Ezra Rapport is executive director of the Association of Bay Area Governments. We also have Mike Gilmetti, president of Signature Development Group, and Stuart Cohen from Transform. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, we're going to bring out the mic, and uh, Devin's going to bring the mic out and invite you to come up and uh, present your questions to uh, our, our guests. And uh, we'll start there. And while people are forming, I'd like to circle back. We've been talking mostly about mitigation, reducing the impact of future climate change. There's also uh, adapting to the climate change that's already in the system. Uh, Mike, you built, you're about to start construction someday uh, soon on, on Oak to Ninth. And that's a project that's uh, on the waterfront in the former uh, dock lands uh, south of Jack London Square. Uh, did you take future sea level rise into account when you were building, planning that development? We did, yes. Um, we were basically building the whole site up by, you know, a little over three feet. Does that cost more money? It does. Um, but, um, w- well, we did it for a variety of reasons. There, there you know, um, a lot of the soil conditions are... Mud, you know, it's, it's a bay mud under there, so we bring in new soil to uh, 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 bring more stability to, to the area. But we also did it for um, these notions of, of, of uh, sea level uh, change um, arguments. And we were just approved by the Bay Conservation Development Commission just, just last January, four or five months ago, um, who commended us for those efforts. So in the lifetime of that uh Development 30, 40 years or, or longer. Uh, if the BCDC, the Bay Conservation Development Commission maps are correct, some of that surrounding area is going to be the, the bay is going to be lapping at your toes there. Well, so uh, you bring up a good point. Oops, sorry. Uh, you bring up a good point that I, I can't remember Stuart or, or Ezra brought up, but you know we can't be the only solution here because yeah, if everything happens the way the maps say they're going to happen, we'll be there. Uh, but you'll need a rowboat to get from our project to, you know, parts of Oakland because, you know, a third of Oakland will be underwater. Uh, and so, and that's not, uh, you know, a, 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 a scenario that can or will play out. Um, so other, other steps have to be taken at a local and regional and state, probably federal level, uh, to help, um, you know, save these cities. I mean, it just, it's, you're just not going to re- retreat and have a million people get relocated. Um, the alternatives, well, first of all, after that, is there going to be an Oakland A's baseball stadium nearby? We hope so. Uh, the city's worked very hard <laughs> in, in, uh, to, to that and make it transit friendly and, and to provide for a vibrant neighborhood. I mean, look, look at what happened here with AT&T Park uh, in South Beach. On adaptation, uh, Ezra, are, are the cities planning for you know, infrastructure? I mean, Stuart just said earlier that we don't have enough money to fund the infra- uh, transportation infrastructure we already have, and yet the Bay Area counties are going to have to spend a lot of money on levees and building up and protecting what we've already got. Well, our number one risk is seismic, and, right. you know, we, and that could happen at any time. We tend to forget that, you know, in such deep denial that we're talking about <laughs> sea level rise, which is, you know, 20, 30, 40 years before we can start measuring it seriously. 
Um, but we, well, we, some people would say it's here today. But yeah, I get your point. It, well, it, we, we we live in a in a in a in a in the Bay Area, which has one of the premier economies in the world. And uh, if we want to keep that and keep our quality of life, we're going to have to make some public investments to protect it. And I think the people here are ready to do that. If someone can present a rational plan of government with high-quality schools and higher education and good transit and transportation. And more and, taxes? And Well, they think more public investment and keeps their property values high, yes. I mean, I don't think people here have been shy about investing in their communities and making sure that it, the, the proper things come in. And look at the Bay Bridge. I mean, one segment of that costs $6 billion, but it was done because no one wants to see the bridge fall down. I mean, we all have an investment. BART was built here. 50 years ago uh, through a general obligation bond that the people passed by 60%. We need more of that type of vision. Uh, and if we can have a vision for how we can proceed into the future, then I think people will support it. Senator John Kerry was here a couple of weeks ago. He mentioned that, reminded us that the, the Golden Gate Bridge was built during very difficult economic times. The Bay Area stepped up and made a big investment that we're still benefiting from. Let's have the audience question, please. Okay. Um, you mentioned things about uh, accommodating playpens. Are there things happening to look at the elderly and their specific needs in relation to maintaining high density with transportation or other accommodations? Uh, well, the elderly population is going to double over the next 25 years, and that's a big portion of the market for why these priority development areas should work because mm-hmm. we know that many seniors would prefer to live in a, in a less auto-dependent environment when, where it's safe, and you can get around with transit and enjoy some cultural amenities. So we think that's an important part of the market that, that could actually make cities work much better. At the same time, in some of the urban periphery, there might be more active retirement communities that would have less trips and less burden on, on, the, on the road system because there wouldn't be that much need to travel. So I think it's a very important aspect of the planning process is to look at your demographics over the future, determine where your market is, and then help support the type of, the, of, of projects that would accommodate that need. Stuart Cohen, uh, you're a transit advocate. Uh, what do you think about congestion pricing and, and having uh, pricing roads at different levels at, at different times of day? That's been quite controversial here in San Francisco. It's worked in some other places. Should we do it? Uh, well, funny enough, we're starting to do it in a tiny way on the Bay Bridge, where it actually changes price uh, and gets more expensive during rush hour. And what we're seeing there is it is actually working. It uh, has improved traffic flow there. The big proposal for the Bay Area is to take our 400 miles of carpool lanes, connect them a little bit better so that there would be about 500 miles, and then charge solo drivers uh, to be able to go in there for a fee. Um, so that, I think, is going to really be our version of congestion pricing if it happens in the Bay Area. That could be done in a really efficient way because... Uh, it basically takes the same amount of lane space and uses it more efficiently, you know, uh, without expanding the roadway. Um, however, we really want to see the goal of that kind of a system be to offer people more choices, use the funds that come out of it to fund new transit services, carpooling and vanpooling incentives. We don't want to see it as a revenue generator to yet build more roads. That was a proposal that still can come back. Um, and that will go against all of these same climate goals. So, you know, we have a system that's crazy. I, I liken it to the old Russian bread lines. You know, you'd have to wait literally, you know, an hour or two to get your bread um, because, you know, they were giving it away for free, but they weren't producing it enough. And that's what we do with our roads right now. Uh, you know, most people want to use them 
at 8 o'clock and then again at 5 o'clock. And for the rest of the day, we've got a lot of space on them. And so we've got to use them more rationally instead of expanding them. It's part of both the climate solution, and if we do it right, it's part of our transit sustainability solution. But allowing people who have extra <laughs> money to just buy their way into the HOV, into the express lanes, does that really change anything? Or does that really solve anything? Um, well, it solves a couple of things. Um, first off, the demand for new roads, uh, which is a little bit less here in the Bay Area than when we look. Uh, I'm doing a lot of work right now in San Diego, for example, and they're expanding all of their roads. If you don't have an outlet for somebody who's late for their plane, late for their critical meeting, late to pick up their children or child care, you're going to have huge public popular demand for expanding roads. It's the kind of demand we saw on the Caldecott Tunnel um, that there was for a, a third, another board, a, a fourth board, so that board. there's always four in each direction. Um, it, you know, it had astronomical support, over 80% in Contra Costa County because they sat in that congestion. The environmental community, including our group, really tried to fight it and do alternatives. If we were able to implement some kind of congestion pricing on the four lanes leading into when it would close down to two, use that money to fund alternatives, people would not have the, the popular demand to spend $400 million that would have diminished. So yeah, we have, we have okay. to look at this as a comprehensive system, and, um, and and I think reducing that demand is part of it. So it's a safety valve of sorts to create, uh, dissipate pressure for, for worse things happening is what yeah. you're saying. We're getting here toward the uh, – we've got one more que- audience question. Sure. Uh, just wanted to mention from a climate standpoint, it makes no sense to provide a system that encourages single-occupant driving and that a far more climate-appropriate solution would be congestion pricing of the entire freeway so that everybody paid a price and that that would therefore um, uh, serve to reduce demand for driving alone. Um, driving alone is the biggest environmental impact, and it's it's the biggest generator of GHGs in the Bay Area. If we're not directly providing an incentive to not do that, we're not accomplishing our goals. Right. And so, so, so David's absolutely right. And, and that's the problem with MTC, our regional agency's current proposal, is that it doesn't have a goal in mind of, for example, increasing the average number of people in cars. And if it's done poorly, like David's mentioning, it could actually decrease it by giving people that are currently carpooling a way out of that. And so we've got to be much more strategic, set these goals, um, like increasing average vehicle occupancy, reducing climate emissions, and then only implementing if it meets that, uh, not just doing it because we can and other regions are. And so that's the kind of outcome-oriented planning that SB 375 supports, but there's still a lot of details that are left up to the regions that we can really mess up. Um, and so we are hoping that this congestion pricing, uh, again, is done in a way that both provides more transportation choices and we want to see an analysis that we call an equity analysis that low-income communities need to benefit as a whole. Um, these have been termed Lexus lanes, and to some degree they are. Those are going to be some number of yep. people. But we've also, you know, seen in other regions that low-income folks are using it. But the real question is, on a whole, could we reduce costs for low-income riders overall by providing them those choices, by maybe reducing the cost of transit in those corridors as part of the implementation? Um, and I think, of, you know, you brought up taxes, and can, taxes are going to have to go up as part of it, and that's likely true. Taxes and fees may have to go up. But again, we have to look at people's 
total outlays of what they're spending on things like transportation and housing and not how much comes through you know, uh, the government and how much comes through ExxonMobil, Toyota, Ford. Uh, because right now in the Bay Area, our public agencies are spending about $4 billion a year on transportation. Commuters, all of us you know, in this room and listening on the radio and TV, are spending $31 billion a year directly to General Motors and Exxon, and uh, as well as the local repair shop. Um, and so if we could invest a little bit more in transit, uh, invest a little bit more in giving people options, car share, other things that can make it easier for people to drive less and possibly some of them reduce their vehicle ownership, as a region, we can actually reduce our total transportation costs, even if some government fees go up. Um, and that's, again, the kind of analysis we have to show people um, if we're going to win over their support. We've got a great report called Windfall for All that actually shows that out of that $31 um, billion, if all Bay Area residents had access to transit that was as good as the best 20% of residents, we could reduce that cost, that personal cost, by about $10 billion, by about 30%. And so we've got to get those arguments out there and, and show the evidence that it can really work. And typical household, I don't know if you said this, pays about 20% of their annual uh, budget on, on transportation costs. That was Stuart Cohen, executive director of Transform. As a report, uh, are you, the members of the Association of Bay Area Governments, elected officials, are they going to go for congestion pricing, uh, tax increases to, uh, to fund the kind of infrastructure we've been talking about? We've got to wrap it up here soon. Well, I, I think when you look at the land uses in the Bay Area, it's very hard to get to most places by transit, and that's not likely to change because we've built a society that's auto-dependent. Um, so trying to tax your way or trying to tax mobility isn't going to be a solution that resonates with uh, local governments or most of the communities of the Bay Area. It might work in San Francisco where you do have a transit system, but it, it's not going to work in most of the region. I don't think that's the right place to start. I think the right place to start is with the partnership with local governments, regional agencies, and, and the environmental communities about what is our vision and how do we think we can implement it and what are the things that are, that are low-hanging fruit that's easy for us to do. Um, and then once we're able to get through a, a good foundation of that kind of work and look at our infrastructure needs, et cetera, then I think a case can be made to the public to about better rationalizing how we spend public money as well as what additional monies we might need. Last word, Mike Kilmetti. Do you think we're going to be able to, do you think that more public money needs to be forthcoming to make these kinds of things happen? I don't know if it's more public company, I think a better allocation of public money. Um, it may be more, um, but, but I, think, I think a better allocation of how we're spending our money. And I, and I think the public-private partnerships could add a lot to it. Again, the development community um, has, has been responsible for putting in a lot of infrastructure around the Bay Area and can be part of the solution. Not voluntarily. Government's made you do it, right? Um, yep. It's part of the package. Part of the package is, is mitigating uh, the impacts that, 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 that we create. And so that mitigation package is putting in some of that infrastructure. How much of the development that you have in the pipeline now is transit-oriented development? When you look out what you're going to build in the future, how much of it is, is transit-friendly uh, building? Um, well, by broader definition, of transit is all transit, not BART per se, which a lot of people non -auto, are rail. Not auto, I guess. Yeah, I'd say you know, well more than fifty percent, probably sixty, seventy percent. 
We have to end it there. Our thanks to Michael Meddy, president of Signature Development Group. We've also heard from Ezra Rapport, executive director of the Association of Bay Area Governments, and Stuart Cohen, executive director of Transform. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming to Climate One. Thank you for listening. That concludes our program.